Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show, a place for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corcoran. I woke up this week, like many people, scrolled and scrolled through my social media. The usual fodder was in tow, Donald Trump's antics, take a knee, stand up. But then there was a flood that took over the medium. Hashtag Me Too. As the stories of Harvey Weinstein and other men became clearer and the number of high-profile women who, in, who courageously began detailing their accounts of sexual harassment and sexual assault, a movement set afoot. One that had been started 10 years ago by Tarana Burke, but now was spreading like a wildfire through Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I continued to scroll and scroll and scroll, but at no point did the hashtag end. There were countless stories of women simply saying, me too. But others who detailed events in their childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. The sheer number became unnerving. And then I came across a commentary from a man. At first, before even reading, I thought this was going to be some person who was uninformed, making some quip from a male privileged perspective. It wasn't. What this commentary detailed was a thoughtful reflection from a man about this issue. It did not ridicule women for their behavior. It did not say that they were asking for it. It did not say that women should arm themselves against men. It said that we as men have to look critically at ourselves to go deep inside to see how we are socialized to interact with women and men and realize that this socialization may be and possibly be archaic. What else was refreshing was the contriteness of the, con the, contriteness of the commentary, a level of vulnerability that I feel most men wouldn't admit to. I've only seen sparse few of these types. But it made me think of my own actions and how I could have been and will be better with my words and my behavior. To help me unpack this campaign and what we can do to move forward, I am joined by some powerhouse guests today. First, CEO of Overcoming Racism, the profound and prophetic Matthew Kincaid. And after the break, my good friend, chair of the Department of Criminal Justice at Loyola University, Dr. Ray Taylor. But first up, I got to say, if you don't know this brother, you need to meet him. He will, he will move you in places that you have never been moved. He will have you thinking about things that you've never thought about. He will put you in a place, sometimes uncomfortable, but that's what he's going to do. Brother Matthew Kincaid, what's up, man? How you doing? I'm doing great. I'm just so humbled and honored to be here today, thankful to have the opportunity to have this conversation, a conversation that men need to be having with men across this country if we're going to ever see change. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, I'm pleased, man. I'm pleased to ask you this question. I'm actually honored to ask you this question, man. What's your revolution? Man, I have so many different revolutions. Um, you know, obviously the, the main revolution is to overcome um, patriarchal white supremacy 
The work that I'm doing with Overcoming Racism focuses particularly on schools, training anti-racist educators who go on to create culturally responsive environments for our, our students. Um, Overcoming Racism, we believe that we can continue to challenge the symptoms of educational inequity, or we can finally address the cause, which is systemic racism. So we go around giving teachers the tools to do just that, address racism and the racial trauma that kids are experiencing outside of the classroom, making sure that they're not bringing that, that teachers aren't reifying that trauma inside the classroom. Man, you, you got that elevator pitch down. <laughs> down <laughs> a lot straight. of practice. Man, no doubt. It was practice. beautiful, man. I appreciate that, man. If, you know, how can people check you out? Website, how can they get in contact? I want to put that out early. Absolutely. www.overcomingracism.com. You can see what we're up to, some, some of the different trainings we've done around the city and now around the country. Um, follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, at Overcoming Racism. Yeah, it's a movement. We want we want people to get involved. That's why, brother. You know, and uh, as I said in my uh, my monologue here, I was moved by your post, brother. You know, and so let's get into it. what were your initial thoughts, man, when you first began to see the thousands of Me Too's that were scrolling a along your timeline. So I had kind of been not particularly on social media too heavy. I, I had just spoken, I think, the day before at Afropunk, and I was on a pretty high off of that. And so I had woken up, you know, kind of groggy and looked through my Facebook feed. Um, I had planned on taking a little social media hiatus after, you know, all the kind of plugging for the Afropunk stuff. And I kept seeing Me Too, Me Too, Me Too. Um, it was a, a number of posts that I saw before I finally saw the antecedent which was, you know, women saying that they were speaking about their experiences with, you know, sexual harassment or sexual assault. Um, and I reflected on that for a little bit and kept scrolling to see if, you know, I had seen any of my other male friends, you know, responding to this campaign. And it, it made me just feel sad, um, obviously because of the condition that women live in with our pervasive rape culture um, and, you know, pervasive institutional sexism. But mostly because I feel like men oftentimes don't show up or know how to respond when these situations happen, when in reality, like, dismantling sexism is a problem that, that you know, it's a man's problem. It's our problem. And so, you know, I felt like the campaign was woefully backwards. When we see things like what's happening with Harvey Weinstein or Donald Trump or Bill Cosby or these other high-profile abusers, um, men should, you know, come together in, in contemplative reflection about, you know, how we can change ourselves and the way that we express our masculinity such that we don't continue to replicate these realities for women across the country and, quite frankly, across the globe. Right. The interesting thing that you said about that is men coming together to have that dialogue. And I don't know if I've ever been in a setting unless I was facilitating, you know, where, where, with a group of men. And usually it was my students right. at Loyola. It was an event that we were doing. But a group of men who strategically actually came together to really talk about the their impact on women usually it's the converse we're gonna right. get, we're gonna get together to talk about the the nefarious things that happen uh with women you right. know that that is the collegial conversation that seems to happen you know almost time to and maybe i'm selling the the kool-aid uh <laughs> is that that's the collegial things that bring men that brings men together right you know right, particularly right. when we're younger absolutely particularly absolutely. when we're younger and um it is Sadly to say, it is it is a galvanizing point. Yeah, you know, and I, and I'm putting it out there. It is a galvanizing point sometimes with men to talk about their experiences with women. All right. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I mentioned in my post was just about, I mean, how much about growing up 
as male and when you layer on top homophobia on top of that and you layer on top patriarchy, I mean, internalized superiority that we're kind of trained as men, so much of that was about having conquests with women or proving conquests with women. Whether you're actually having those conquests or not, right, there is this pervasive pressure that we put on ourselves and one another to fit in this very ill-defined uh, or maybe in some ways very specifically defined but impossible to actually live out box of what is masculine and what is feminine. Um, and if you aren't in that box, then, you know, a lot of us young men spend a lot of time pretending and performing to be in that box. Um, and quite frankly, one of the messages when I talk to my male students about this or when I talk to other men about these topics is, I mean, you know, for our own humanity and our own um, sanity and our own emotional well-being and development, we should start deconstructing what it means to be masculine in, in the ways that those, you know, labels oftentimes don't fit us and hurt us. Right, exactly. And that's the impetus for this show is really finding out, defining what's healthy, you know, what is healthy masculinity, and then really putting it into context into who you are. And right. so that's why we've kind of shied away from this context of saying this is a show about healthy masculinity. It's about finding the healthiest version of yourself. Right, right. So you wrote this post, um, and what was the internal dialogue that was going through? Because what I heard was, you know, the possibility of, of being socialized uh, as a man. You know, what was that internal dialogue as you were writing that post, which is really quite eye-opening and quite vulnerable and quite reflective? I don't know. I think I think I felt particularly dismayed that I saw women coming to the table to do so much emotional labor when men are often to do so often asked to do so little. Um, and I think, you know, my brother actually posted something that I really liked and agreed with, which he was like, I'm a sexist in recovery, you know, and I think that wow. like, it's really hard wow. for men to admit our sexism mm. um, in ways in which we've been trained and socialized to be sexist in ways in which the media and other, um, you know, stimulus, stimulus and stimuli come, you know, into our lives that also reify our, you know, training to be sexist. And, you know, it's a painful thing to go on the Internet and admit that you've, you know, made advances towards women or you've made comments or you haven't, you know, stopped or stepped in. But the reality is I would imagine almost every man has been in that position. And um, until you can admit that you're a part of the problem, you can't solve it. You can't be in recovery. You can't um, overcome it. And so if I spend all my, you know, a lot of my time teaching about racism and, and from an intersectional lens and, and imploring white people to understand white privilege and, and how those dynamics um, impact the way that they interface with people of color. Well, as a man and as, as a cis person, as a heterosexual, I should be identify, I should be challenging my privilege identities too, and I should be willing to step to the plate and do the work that I expect white people or anybody else who are, who are privileged to do that work as well. Right, and, you know, and that's the, the consistent dialogue that I've been having with myself because it's uncomfortable work, and I love that your brother really brought in to simplify. Right. I mean, really, right. really simplify this in a manner that is going to actually open up a dialogue, hopefully, that the hashtag MeToo opened up for women. Right. Because right. there are out there, there are men out there waiting to see that other men can really be vulnerable and say, I've been sexist too. Absolutely. Right. And that's what I loved about your post because it's a revolution in the sense that you're allowing other people to see that I'm flawed and it's, right. and it's okay. It, it, it's okay to say I'm flawed, I understand, and I'm working to grow. And that was one of the things I was thinking about. You know, and I'll, I'll ask Dr. Taylor this on the backside: is that what does this, uh, you know, what comes out of the Me Too? What's supposed to come out of that? 
You know, one of the things that was bothersome to me about the Me Too campaign was this notion that as men, we're not aware of the fact that women are experiencing this pervasive, um, you know, culture of, of this pervasive rape culture, but definitely a culture of toxic masculinity, when in reality, like if anyone has close proximity to that, it's men. And so, um, you know, I don't think that we need anyone to prove to us that these things are happening. We just have to come to the plate and be prepared to, you know, have the conversations. And so I hope what comes out of it, for men at least, is more folks who are willing to put themselves out there and say, it's not fair to ask somebody to endure the daily trauma of their oppression and then to have those people, you know, bear their flesh and reopen their wounds just so people with privilege can better understand their experience. I mean, that's 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 cruel. That's one of the, cru the you know one of the more cruel natures of oppression is that you know not only do you have to endure the oppression, but you constantly have to prove to folks with privilege that you're enduring the oppression. And that's not fair, and it's exhausting. It is exhausting. It's an interesting thing, and that would, let's move this into a little bit more of an intersectional nature, is that Damon Young wrote this article about how straight black men are the oppressors of black women. Have you read that article? I have, I have, yeah. You know, and so it, it's interesting. What was your feelings about that article? Because it talks about really in a really critically – a critical perspective how we as men of color are not showing up right you know in these same instances where black women are saying that we've been oppressed we've been sexually assaulted we've been sexually harassed but where are you and you are the people who are perpetrating these things against us it's a really really rip the band-aid off rip the blindfold off type of commentary and he got a lot of pushback yeah the the title was uh the title i think was what really got people mm -hmm. you know it's interesting because if there's one commonality in black history, I'm, you know, I consider myself a scholar of black history, is that black women have shown up for the cause, for the struggle, for the fight every single time, um, many times as the leaders. And then in the times in which they aren't the, you know, face frontward leaders, really they're the ones doing a majority of the work behind the scenes, right? Um, and despite that reality we have um black men not showing up for for women of color um trans women you know women of other intersections the way that women show up for us and i think that this is quite frankly one of the main downfalls of any sort of movement that we can have to have social progress in this country because black women have been abandoned by so many different groups you had the original feminist movement right and black right, women showed exactly. up for you know white women and particularly when it comes this to suffrage and their you. right to vote well once white women got their right to vote they completely abandoned black women in that struggle and so um if other folks are going to abandon black women when they show up to do the work for everybody else if black men abandon them as well then you know we definitely cannot continue to persist as a culture um, we have to push our toxic masculinity aside our ego and patriarchy um, and support black women because if we if we don't, then there's nothing left. Right, right. You're listening to the Western Revolution Show powered by Aetna. Having a critical conversation here with a powerhouse man, Matthew Kincaid, CEO of Overcoming Racism, and really talking about the hashtag Me Too, its prevalence, what we need to do as men. And I know you do a lot of work in schools. Right. Um, and before the show, you talked about you know, several conversations that you were having with some of the students that you're working with. What was that like, you know, and, and what came out of those conversations? So um, I can talk about one story, and I'll do my best to keep it as short as I can um, around time, working with a, a, a young, a group of young men around issues of masculinity, sexism, internalized superiority. And so one of the things that we have to understand about um, internalized superiority as it pertains to sexism 
is that it's particularly harmful for men. It, it, it makes it to where as we're socializing in a society where men are not supposed to show emotion. Uh, men are not supposed to have loving relationships with other men where you can, you know, perhaps cry with that person or, or have that person console you or bear your soul to that person. Um, and those are really human things that we need for our basic survival. And so we oftentimes put the burden on young women. So um, I, was, I had an opportunity when I was younger to participate in this camp where we're having these conversations, um, and we're doing a breakout conversation where we had broken the young men um, into a different group and the young ladies into another group, and we're having these conversations. And um, the, the, the fellows had just done a stand-up, sit-down exercise where we asked them a series of questions that kind of brought up these realities, things like stand-up if you've ever been told to act like a man or ever been told that you couldn't cry, um, stand-up if you have a knife or bullet wound on your body, right, or stand-up if you've ever been forced to fight when you didn't want to. These things that unfortunately are, are in many ways common occurrences as a part of growing up male, um, you know, and having to portray these things. And so we get into our circle, and these young fellas, you know, from the age of about 14 to 18, they're sharing these kind of war stories with masculinity. I remember one young man talked about his dog dying, and, and he, you know, when he was younger, and he cried. His father punched him in the chest and told wow. him not to cry. Right. Another young man, uh, you know, this was um, back when I was in St. Louis, talked about when he was 15, a friend being murdered right in front of his face, and then not feeling like he had the, you know, he could cry about that. And so they're going around telling these stories, and you could see this palpable tension in the room, but none of these young men will dare to shed a tear in, in this in this setting where it's right, all right, boys, no, it's, right? It, yeah. It's just like this, you know, so you see them there. Lord of the Flies type of, yeah. Right, they're yeah. like scrunching up their necks. They're, they're, you can physically see it in their chest, and then all of a sudden one of the boys, boom, hits the door, right? And so I follow this kid out, and he's bald over. He's just weeping in the hallway. And so, you know, I talk to him, lift him up, and I say, hey, man, you have to go back inside of that room, and you have to do that in front of the rest of them. Um, and so he, you know, gets himself together, walks back into the room, and almost as if it was a physical reaction, sucks up all the tears, right, and sits back down. We continue the conversation. I literally walk around the room and start putting my hand on these really boys, you know, young, young men's chest, and rubbing their chest and saying, let it go, each right, one by one, right, let it go, right. let it go, let it go. And before you knew it, the entire room was just weeping and weeping and weeping. Right. So we finish the conversation. They're hugging. They're self-soothing. They're taking care of themselves. And what happens next is particularly interesting. And to give some context to that in the stories about the end, we had been talking about sexism a few days before. So when we had broken them out into groups, when we came out of the groups talking about sexism, the boys were trying to be as far away from the young ladies as possible. Right. They felt like they had just been indicted by this system. Right. They gave them a ton of space. So we come out of this room and the young ladies who were in the camp immediately rushed to the young men and started comforting them, right? And so it was this interesting kind of story about society in which a few days prior, these young men were not rushing to the comfort of the young ladies. They were feeling ashamed and embarrassed and were doing anything that they could to stay away from engaging in the reality that perhaps they had done something, even at the camp, that created the reality of sexism for the young women. But when these young men were crying and going through their emotional moment, these young women came and took care of them, um, and they weren't even allowed to or didn't have to self-soothe. So, um, you know, I hope they got something out of that conversation, but it's interesting just about how quickly we can retreat to comfort, even when we're put in an uncomfortable position where right. we have to, you know, face right. our, our socialization. It's interesting, though, in that story, all of that, because it, it, it begs to question how our socialization, you know, um, Hold it in. Be stoic. See women as conquest. See women as ornate. But the latter part of that story was 
who went to comfort? Right. Right? Right. Did the boys go and comfort the young women? The young women had to go, had to, not even had to, felt the, the need to give themselves right. to the young boys so they could be strong. Where was it? Where was it for them? So there's right. got to be this this duality of, of soothing and, and comfort. And I think that's what we're saying right now is that we're hearing all of this, and it's not noise. Right. It's reality. We have to begin the process of helping our sisters heal, as well as the men who have been through this as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. You know who who have been, and we don't want to. We want to talk about this from an equitable perspective. And the lion's share, right. li- lion's share, have been women, but there have been men who have been sexually harassed and oh, sexually absolutely. assaulted. All right, who deal with the same pain and are not coming out. Right? right, who are not saying me too, and this is particularly evident for boys and men of color. Absolutely, yeah. And so that's why I was wondering in the story, what, who in there was holding that in that might have been sexually assaulted themselves? Right, you never know. And I and I think one of the things that I take away from that moment is like we can't. I don't know if we can be a part of the healing process for women until we learn how to be a part of the healing process for ourselves. Because when you're talking about these moments where you've either been forced to fight somebody or you have had felt like you've had to uphold these toxic forms of masculinity, um, these are wounds. These are traumas. Um, and oftentimes we find women and we you know, let our emotional baggage out upon them because we can't form a, a loving relationship with one another. So you know, uh, men need to focus on healing themselves right. and men need to focus on building coalition with one another um, so that we can be whole, so that we can you know, reject these messages that, quite frankly, hurt us. Let me – because I, I always want the people who give us our time during the week to say, you know, I took something away. So what does that mean? What does that look like for us to be whole? You know, for you, if you want to tell that story, what was it? What did it look like for you to go and get whole? Yeah, well, for me, I mean, I'm blessed. You know, I, you know, I wish I could shout out individually all of the people, particularly black women, who took me under their wings and taught me about what it means to, you know, better understand the dynamics of patriarchy. Um, and so, you know, for me, that was attending that camp and as a, as a young person and being able to have those conversations. It started with education, you know, and and once I received an education that it was okay to let go of some of those things and some of those messages that I was trained, things like, you know what, it's actually okay to cry. You know what, it's actually okay to tell another man I love you or to embrace that person. Um, It's actually okay to ask for help, (laughs) you know, and things of that nature. Um, That education was important. And to ask for help from women. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that, that that you can get outside of yourself and say, you know what, I don't know this. Or to even say, or to even say, perhaps I'm not the most qualified person for this. And here's a woman or somebody who maybe doesn't have the institutional lift because of privilege. Maybe this person is better suited to, you know, lead this conversation or to lead this movement. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that I've gotten credit for uh, in my life where, you know, women have been at the root of that. And you know, I have to step aside and say, well, actually, you know, I appreciate the. You know the credit, but you know let's let's reify the fact that women were the ones who started this conversation right. and bring those those notions back to center. Exactly, and I think that we need to continue to push that with with all men. And I think the you know as a man of color and, and knowing the work that I have to continually do for myself, not not only building on my personal cachet, right? You know, uh, as well as what do I do as a leader, hopefully a leader of men around building up the group, the global cachet around this. And as you said, 
and I say all the time, global revolution does not exist without personal revolution. Right. We cannot, and, and that's the same thing in your work. And so, the last thing I want to, I, I really want to get at before we go to break is. How can we use your overcoming racism work to do some overcoming sexism work? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, I, I, there's so many people that I wish I could shout out individually in terms of what they poured into me to even make overcoming racism a possibility. Um, I definitely do my best to make sure that we look at um, these dynamics from an intersectional lens. One of the tricks that I use in my anti-racism training, you know, it's almost like giving folks a peek behind the curtain, is that when I feel like people aren't understanding what I'm saying around, you know, the notions of white supremacy and whiteness, I just flip it and start talking about sexism. So I'll oftentimes talk about what it's been like for me as a man to embrace my journey of trying to live a womanist or feminist or intentionally anti-sexist lifestyle. And I think that helps for, you know, and outing myself as a sexist, I think that helps, you know, for women, for white people to say like, oh, wait, he just said that he was socialized to be sexist and here are the ways that he's fighting against that socialization. Maybe I can acknowledge the ways, the harmful messages about whiteness that I was trained and told, and maybe I can start that process too. It's not about judgment and it's not about blame. It's about change. It is about people change. Who are targeted say that again. Say, say that it's again. It's not about judgment. It's not about blame. It's about change. People who are targeted don't need people who are privileged to say, I'm sorry, over and over and over again, or to feel guilty about it. They need action. And desperately, we need action right now because we see the dynamics of what's playing out in our society, particularly what's happening with young women, but also what's happening with, with men. Mm -hmm. look, at, look at these mass shootings and look at everything else. Men are, are overwhelmingly the perpetrators of violence on a global scale. Global stage. So global. there's a sickness and we see in us it every, that we have to it check. Plays out in it. it plays out in politics. It plays out this masculine nature. And we, we're seeing it at the highest levels. Yep. <laughs> I mean – Every day, this this posturing, right? And what what and people do, you know, we talk about mirror mirror neurons and everything. People do what they see, right? right? And why we're seeing the increase in global acts towards women, towards other people, racism is because we are now seeing this on Instagram and Twitter, Absolutely. on TV, nanoseconds. You Absolutely. can go get it. I mean, you can go get it and you can see it, and there's really, but you can't really go see the opposing side. Right. You gotta, you gotta hunt. You know, I, I talk about um, these positive images of men of color on right. TV. Yes, we're seeing. You know, at first I, I got to see a little bit of This Is Us last okay. night, right? And, and and got to see. If you watched last night, Sterling K. Brown's character and another brother almost get into it. But what I love is that there was some de-escalation right, right. that happened because oftentimes when you see two brothers oh, yeah. face to face like that, it's going down. Right. Right. Because Instagram is now I can I can show the fight. Right. Just like that, you know. And so we've got to be able to get past that and really work beyond the confines of what has been set for us and what we see on a daily basis when our president is stoking fires with another <laughs> world leader just for. You know, pontification. I, I, I'm going to be out here doing this, right? And we all know that diplomacy is what – but that's hyper-toxic masculinity Absolutely. right there. Absolutely. Right. And, it, and it ta it's taking lives. It consumes lives. Um, you know, and so it's something that we have to get in check. You know, I think we, ha we had an opportunity to elect a, a woman leader. And uh, obviously we weren't, we weren't able to do that. So, um, you know, we don't know 
in this country what it would look like for a woman to lead our nation or to allow women to lead our nation. And perhaps, you know, we wouldn't find ourselves in violent militarized conflicts, you know, every so often right. um, if we remove the element of toxic masculinity from that piece. Gotcha. Gotcha. Matthew, man, hold on, brother. We're going to continue this conversation after the break. I want you all to think about this. Gentlemen, do you actually know what consent is? Do you actually know what the parameters of sexual harassment is? Do you know what sexual assault is? We're going to have this conversation with my good friend, Dr. Ray Taylor, chair of the Department of Criminal Justice at Loyola, New Orleans. Stay tuned, everybody. Catch us after the break. Another flow. Every time I hear a brother call a girl a beat or a trying to make a sister feel low, you know all of that got to go. Now everybody knows there's exceptions to this rule. I'll be getting mad. We playing is cool, but don't you be calling me out my name. I bring grit to those who disrespect me like a dame. That's why I'm talking. One day I was walking down the block, had my cut off short, so right. It was crazy how I walked past these dudes, they passed me. One of them felt my booty, he was nasty. I turned around red, somebody was catching the rap. The little one said, yeah, me be laugh. He was with his boys, he tried to break fly. That's why. Who you calling up? You and I, T.Y., yeah. build your empire there will be a local job fair on october 21st to help you connect with other people providing similar services as well as connect you with local vendors and participating trade programs to help you grow that empire want to know more contact civil rights activist angelina at elder angelina at yahoo.com that's e-l-d-e-r-a-n-g-e-l-i-n-a at yahoo.com There's freedom at Liberty Bank. At Liberty Bank, you can now open a checking account online and gain immediate access to our many services. It's easy for you to go and keep track of your account at www.LibertyBank.net. You can even apply for loans or services on the go. Banking at Liberty, now 24 hours a day, seven days a week at www.LibertyBank.net. Bank at Liberty, there's freedom here. And don't forget to use promo code WBOK.
looking for that perfect gift for a birthday, an anniversary, or how about just to brighten someone's day? Mona's Accents is your one-stop shop for beautiful floral arrangements that are indeed perfect for any special occasion. Dedicated to quality, freshness, and customer satisfaction, Mona's Accents will surely take care of all of your floral needs. So stop by the shop located at 2109 North Claiborne Avenue or call us at 504-944-7001 and let us arrange and deliver your floral gifts. Again, that's 504-944-7001. Or you can order online at www.monasaccents.com. Mona's Accents, freshness, quality, and customer satisfaction guaranteed. Come visit H&W Drugstore, African-American owned and operated, servicing the New Orleans community for over 50 years. Experience fast, friendly, courteous, and caring service every time. Let our knowledgeable and friendly staff take care of all your prescription needs. Same medicine, same copay, if not lower than the big box pharmacies. H&W Drugstore has two convenient locations to serve you. 8454 Morrison Road, inside USA Market in New Orleans East and 1951 Barataria Boulevard inside Budget Saver Grocery Store in Marrero. H&W Drugstore is African American owned and operated. Call us today at 504-244-3784. H&W Drugstore, knowledgeable, friendly, and here to take care of all your prescription needs. In whole water news, the city of New Orleans hasn't been the same since Pastor Patan started to expose the truth about alkaline oxygenated water. My job is to inform you of the new things that are happening around the world pertaining to your health. How do you plead? Your Honor, I plead guilty. But not only water for your life, but water for your sustainability. Your body is acidic. Listen closely. That is where cancer diabetes, Testimony after testimony of people drinking alkaline oxygenated water and feeling and looking and living better. Pastor David Patan, you have been charged with three counts of exposing the truth about alkaline, ionized, micro-clustered, oxygenated water. How do you plead? Your Honor, I plead guilty. This court accepts your plea of guilty, and in accordance, this court finds you guilty on all three counts. What will happen to Pastor Patan? As more and more people are exposed to the truth about this water, we will have to wait and see what the judge will say next. How do you plead? Your Honor, I plead guilty. But until then... Get your hands on alkaline oxygenated water by calling 504-701-4711 and try it for yourself. We will keep you informed on alkaline oxygenated water as things develop. How do you plead? Your Honor, I plead guilty. WBOK 1230 AM, the People's Station. Welcome back to the What's Your Revolution show. I appreciate y'all sticking with me after the break, man. I want to thank my man, Matthew Kincaid, CEO of Overcoming Racism, for his, man, his commentary, man, his, cura- his courageousness uh, and his willingness to be vulnerable and thoughtful around this conversation about Me Too. On the phone, I've got my great friend, superstar, researcher, professor, everything at Loyola, Dr. Ray Taylor. What's up, Ray? How you doing? 
I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. You know, Ray, I got to ask you, you know what? We've been friends a little too long, but I haven't asked you my question, man. What's your revolution? I'm ready for it. Okay. <laughs> and I appreciate you because you've really inspired me to think about this a lot in the last year. Um, my revolution is to educate. And that's not just in my classroom and through my research, but in my home, um, in my community, through my activism, through my resistance, and by continue, continuing to educate myself. That's it. That, that, that's it. Your resistance. Educate yourself. And you are, uh, uh, you know, one of the pillars over there at, at Loyola. And, and really, what you give to the students, not only in your class, not only in your classroom but also what you do for the students outside of the classroom. You know, you and I have worked together on SAGE, uh, you know, uh, students advocating gender equality, all the various things, that, programs that we put on while we work together at Loyola. Uh, you're a gift over there, and your revolution speaks every day, you know, as, as, particularly as you teach students to resist. And I, I know that's big uh, as we think about what they can do to make sure that they are revolutionary, not only at Loyola, but outside of it when they walk out of the confines of the school. So I, it is a pleasure right. to be called myself your friend, you know. Oh, definitely, likewise. Definitely. How, personally, how's my brother doing? What's going on with him? He's great. He's probably watching right now. He's, he's doing his own resistance, hanging in there, teaching, doing our thing. Right, right. And I want to give a shout-out to my good friend, Dr. Christian Bolden, who is now <laughs> her beautiful and loving and handsome husband, you know. <laughs> that, that's my guy. So, Ray, I know this topic is very important to you and yeah. the work that you've been doing. But what I really want to take from you today is your knowledge, you know, really your, your knowledge around what's been going on. And I want my listeners to understand some certain things. What is consent? And I understand it seems like a very simple question, but I think we need to hear that out loud. Sure. Well, first and foremost, consent is really all about communication. Um, consent is the active giving of permission between both participants. It's not just the female partner. Um, it is voluntary. Consent should never be coerced or forced. It is ongoing. That means that it can be given or taken away at any point. Uh, and it also, consent obviously can't be given if someone is mentally impaired, and that might include intoxication. Right, right, exactly. Those things need to be heard. And yeah. one of the critical things that you said, consent can be given and taken away. That's right. So at some point, something's happening, everything is good, no comes out, it ends. Consent was taken away. So we have to understand that particularly, that it can be taken away at any time. Thank you. What is sexual harassment? Sexual harassment is really any unwelcome sexual advance, a request for sexual favors, any unwelcome verbal or physical act of, of a sexual nature. Um, that can also include offensive remarks about a person's sex, so saying something disparaging about women in general or men in general also would be considered sexual harassment. Gotcha, gotcha. And, and, and to think about that, that it is gender neutral. I mean, yeah. harassment can come from anyone towards anyone at any time. That's right. Uh, and the last question, and, and I hate to have to ask this question, but it, it needs to be put out there. What is sexual assault? Okay, so sexual assault is any sexual conduct or behavior that occurs without explicit consent. And so this would include any form of unwanted touching, uh, forcing a person to perform some sort of sexual act of any kind, um, attempted rape, 
completed rape. Completed rape is, is penetration of any part of a victim's body. Um, so any of those things would be considered sexual assault. Gotcha. And, we, and uh, critical, as you said, consent. Yes. Right? Consent is, and I, you know, interestingly today, I've got on my consent is sexy shirt today. Just oh, to, <laughs> I should have worn mine too. Oh, uh, you know, consent. <laughs> I'll wear it tomorrow. Oh, do that, please. Consent and sexy was a campaign that we actually did at Loyola to really get the students on campus to understand what consent was, what it meant, and what happens when consent happens and there's a mutual consent, and that has to be there. So yeah. men, men and women, people need to understand what that looks like, you know, and that it can be taken away at any point in time. Thank you, Dr. Taylor, for that, that those eloquent uh, information that needs to be put out there. Because uh, what I saw and the reason why I asked that question, those set of questions, was there were some men who were on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram who said, you know what, sometimes we don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. That is right. a problem. It is. And, you know, another misconception is that this is just um, something, that consent is just something that women give. I teach men and women, and I've heard numerous uh, male students over the years express frustration that this is one-sided because they'll say things like, I also sometimes change my mind or things get to a certain point and I don't feel comfortable with it anymore, but society doesn't allow for a man to say, never mind, I don't feel comfortable with this. I don't feel ready for this. Um, so, so men also continue with sexual acts that they don't feel comfortable with. Right, that, and, and that's quite interesting. And they won't go and tell that story to their boys. That's not, right. a, that's not hey, you know what, I, I, I took consent away from her. And right. I just... I, w I went ahead and did that. Um, so that's quite interesting as well. But with, th with this campaign, and we really want to focus on women and, and men being the healthiest versions of themselves when having interactions with men and women, how can this Me Too campaign actually promote real change? You know, I think, so first of all, the Me Too campaign, this, isn't it just amazing how I, this has only been, what, 48, 72 hours, right, um, right. A, a, much of an impact it can have. Um, so Me Too First was started about 10 years ago by Tarana Burke, and it just simply, it was a very grassroots level, just simply a way for women to let other women know you're not alone because right. victimization is very isolating. And so it was a way to say, Me Too, sister, Me Too. So this later, most recent iteration of it um, was, well, to use Alyssa Milano's words directly, to give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. So I think if it has given people a sense of the magnitude of the problem, it is doing something. Um, that's really important. I think one of the, you know, we, we had talked what men should know about the, this experience. I think this Me Too campaign really opened a lot of people's eyes. I saw some comments from male uh, social media friends on, and who said things like, man, I'm gutted by seeing that one after the other after the other women that I'm friends with on Facebook, people I'm related to, people I'm in class with, people I work with, saying, me too, me too, I had no idea. Um, and it's hard to imagine <laughs> not having an idea because one in six women are victims of attempted right. or completed rape in exactly. their lifetime. This right, is, and, and, the num crazy. and the numbers are actually a little bit smaller for women on college campuses. One in five. Right, exactly. Um, it, you're right. It, it, what you said, Ray, is so particularly interesting. Is that it guts? It, it gutted me. Yeah. You know, being able, to, it unnerved me. Like, wow, just scroll, and I, I could not scroll. There was no break. Yeah. At all. 
There, were, there was no break at all, like, me too, me too, me too. And one of our good friends and colleagues told her story, you know, in a manner that she tells her story, you know. And I sat there, and I was like, you know, I, I, I was like, what, what? Yeah. You know, I, I really was like, what, what is going on? And just to be gutted by it. Yeah. You know, as my previous guest, Matthew Kincaid, came on and, and eloquently said, you know, being a sexist in, you know, in reform or sexist in therapy, men have to understand that, that I think what the Me Too campaign also allows for is men to say, you know what, I've got work to do. Yeah. You know, and to not be afraid to say that, because I think... What is happening is that there are many men who are out there and who are seeing this who are gutted, who are going to sit in their male privilege and say, you know what, that's their problem. That's exactly right. I'll say, you know, I was gutted too. I'm not surprised by the numbers. I know the, I know the science behind it. I am a me too. So I know this personally. I know this, Sorry. you know, from a scholarly standpoint. Yet I also was really bothered. And, and you know, if you're not bothered by this, something's really wrong with right, you. Right, right. But, you know, I think that um, as far as what what a movement like this can do, one of the things that you had asked me is what is missing from this conversation. Yes, is it okay yes. if I address that? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Do your um, thing. I think that one, the main thing that is missing from this conversation is men. Um, like we were just saying, one in six women are victims of attempted or completed rape in their lifetime. One in five college women. About uh, one in ten um, victims of rape are men. Right. And so, mm -hmm. you know, going back, violence against women is a worldwide epidemic and has been forever. Um, one in three U.S. women are victims of physical violence at the hands of a man that they love. Right. Mm. Um, so the majority of domestic violence and sexual assault victims are women, and the majority of those perpetrators are men. But, you know, as prevalent as violence against women is, men are still victims of most of the violence that occurs in our society. Therefore, the majority of perpetrators of violence are men. So at the center of violence against women, and indeed violence generally, is men. <laughs> but, of course, all the questions that we ask are, are women-centered. So right. where was she? What was she doing? What was she right. doing? What was all those exactly. dire things? And then when it's a young girl, what do we ask? Where was her mother? And then the way that we, you know, thinking about the way that Jackson Katz talks about this, he, he points out the fact that we say things like, she got raped. We don't say, he raped, raped her, her or right. someone raped her. So by the time it's all said and done, we remove the men who are primarily the perpetrators from the conversation altogether. Exactly. And then when we do include them, it's things like my mom would have said, boys will be boys, or my president says, oh, it's just locker room talk. It's just locker room talk. You're listening to the What's a Revolution show, powered by Aetna, talking about the Me Too campaign. Having this conversation with a superstar, researcher, and professor, <laughs> chair of the criminal justice department at Loyola, Dr. Ray Taylor, Really interested if you would elaborate a little bit more about that, you know, what we're saying to men. Like you said, men are the perpetrators of violence. They're the, the lion's share of violence that occurs in our, in our world is perpetrated by men. Right. But too often when that violence is towards women, we will then attribute that violence to the woman. Mm -hmm. And so what do we need to be saying to men? What needs to happen with men to change this narrative? 
Um, well, first of all, asking that question is really important. Um, I, I think men need to understand that central to the experience of being a woman is being on guard, expecting sexual assault in our lifetime, training our daughters to, to avoid situations. And we're not training our sons not to sexually assault, and we're not training our daughters not to sexual assault. Um, to, to the extent that in terms of our, you know, the way that it affects us, much of our behavior every day revolves around not being sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. from, uh, unpack that a little bit more. Uh, yeah. Uh, what, what does a woman have to go through every day to not be sexually assaulted? Well, much of it, and it's, this becomes really interesting and eye-opening when you do it in the context of a classroom. Yes, yes, that's what, exactly. <laughs> I, I knew you knew exactly where I was going. I know, and I know you've done this too, but, and I always, I, this is the only time I ever uh, segregate my classroom by, by sex or gender or anything for that matter. But I'll start with the men and I'll say, what do you do on a daily basis? Of course, I teach all kinds of criminology courses and gender courses. So what do you do on a daily basis to protect yourself? And they'll say, you know, oh, well, I lock my door when I go to sleep at night or when I leave the house or um, if, I'm, if I'm driving around an area that I'm not familiar with, I'll lock the door of my car. You have the occasional person that will say they, they have a weapon or something like that. But then that's pretty much it, you know. <laughs> and then, of course, we go to the women, and I will fill up an entire chalkboard with things that we do both consciously um, and unconsciously. So, so things like when we walk to our car from, from, you know, you go into the grocery store, you come back to your car, you look over every square inch of that car and underneath it before you put your key in and, wow. and get in. Right. It's just an unconscious thing we do every time we go to the car. The way you carry your keys in your hand. So if you need to use it as a weapon, you can. Um, but then it's also a lot more debilitating in, in ways like not, you know, when and where and how and if we exercise or go out on the town. You don't go out unless you have somebody going with you. Right. I mean, you know, it's sort of the way that we're trained. Um, so, yeah, and then the way that we dress and, and if we have drinks or how many drinks we have. I mean, our behavior really is, is dictated by our goal of not becoming a victim of sexual assault right. at the end of that day. That's tough. I mean, yeah. that, 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 that's tough that that conscious behavior has to happen. And then conversely, and the privileged perspective is that we don't have to think about it. Right. You know, and, and most of the times when I've done that activity is that the guys actually start laughing. I don't do anything to protect myself. What, why do I need to protect myself? I'm the man here. You know, yeah, and, yeah. And, and but then when they get to see the 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 long litany of things that women go through to protect themselves, it is very eye opening. It yeah. is very eye opening for men to be able to see that. You know, the list of mace and project, you know, objects that women can use to stymie men from their advances. All of these things that we don't even carry. You know, that's right. I've got one. I've got one key and a key fob, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that, right. That that's it. But I but I do always have my head on a swivel, but not that I'm thinking about being sexually assaulted. Right. And if you if something happens in the house and a plumber needs to come over, you don't think twice about letting that guy in your house and carrying on with whatever you're doing. Well, I say guy. Usually it's a guy. Um, whereas I love for this me, equitable language that you're using, Ray. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. You don't you don't have to think twice about who comes into your house as far as um, what are they going to do to you while they're there, or you know being caught in an elevator by yourself, or on a flight of stairs and a stairwell by yourself. Um, 
so yeah, those are things that we think of all day, every day. Right, right. Ray, let me ask you this question. You've got a, a 15, 16-year-old uh, mentee, and he, he comes to you and says, you know what, how can I understand how to interact with women? What are some of the things, what are some of the things that you tell him? You know, as, as he's beginning to foray into dating and, and foray, you know, foray, you know, into this world of, of, of sexuality, all these different things. Mm -hmm. How would you counsel your mentee in their interactions with either men or women? Well, I would say, let me call my friend Dr. Corp. No. So what <laughs> I would say, first of all, because I love that question, and I would say to him, first of all, I promise you, whether you know it or not, a woman that you love is a survivor of sexual assault. And when people really, you know, think about that and say, no, I said whether you know it or not. So the first thing I would, I would do is let him know this absolutely applies to you. Um, the second thing is, you know, it shouldn't, there are a few things that I would, and, and funny enough, of course, I've been in this situation, right? I would tell him it shouldn't take having a daughter or sister or girlfriend to appreciate this because not because women are your daughters, but because women are your equals, right. that you are responsible right. exactly. for understanding and appreciating this stuff. I would tell him that um, just understand that, that women, that men are not entitled to anything when it comes to women. Um, women are equal entities in this human race experience and should be respected and valued as such, and there is there's nothing that you are entitled to as a male from a woman, whether that's undressing her with your eyes or touching a part of her body on down the continuum of sexual assault. Um, I would tell him to, to understand that men are also victims of sexual assault, um, that this is not just a women's issue, and ultimately that the solution to violence is in his hands. Right, right, and that, that's very key. The solution to violence is in, in his hands. Yeah. Uh, whether it's him giving consent or him understanding what consent is. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's critical. That, that, that is very critical in that piece. Um, I, I, I love that. I, I, I love it. I, and I think just to add to that is to, to understand the relationship nature that men and women have with each other, mm -hmm. or, or men and men have with each other, um, and how that the, the harmony that can be built when there's trust and openness and love and vulnerability. But I think that has to be socialized way down the road before they even get there to understand what these relationships actually should look like. Because as Matthew said, you know, we have been socialized to be sexist, mm -hmm. right? And sexist in recovery. And I will put it out there, I have been sexist, all right? I, I have said things, you know, and, and now to, to look back and say, yo, whoa, hold on, corporate. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, hold on, hold on. What did you say? And then to have now think through every conversation. Uh, um, I remember, and I've told this story before, but, it, uh, uh, you know, laying in bed, uh, doing some work, and, um, you know, my partner saying, saying something and about to say something very sexist and say, oh, never mind. And then she's saying to me, what were you going to say? I was like, no, because I was going to be really sexist what I said, so I don't need to say it. And so that, that thought process has to be there right. about what, what are the words, what are the behaviors that we're saying to our partners, 
you know, that can come across as demeaning and hurtful and have a tremendous impact? How do we interact with them physically to show love and care and respect, respect for consent, regardless? I, you should not be able to walk into a house intoxicated and be taken advantage of by someone that you love if right. you do not give consent. Right. You know, right. It, it does not matter. It doesn't, consent happens every time with every partner. Regar regardless of marital status. And I think that needs to be put out there, that you understand that you give consent and take consent away. And I think that has to be put out there as well. Right. Uh, so, Ray, the show always goes by so fast, and I appreciate your time. I know you're busy, you know, saving, saving Loyola. Um, <laughs> how can men help in this campaign? If you had one or two things to say to men, you know, about how they can help in this Me Too campaign, what would it be? I would say, well, I would say two things. One is to educate yourself on the issues. Check your male privilege. Get help. Become a recovering sexist, as, as you and Matthew said. Um, I'll tell you, the second thing might come across a little tongue-in-cheek, but I, I, I think it's so poignant. A couple of years ago, I was doing um, a talk in a, a dorm with first-year students. So we were talking about all these same issues. And I, I said, let's end on a hopeful note, and let's go around and let's each say what we're going to do to be a part of the solution. So the first you know, few people said things like, I'm going to make sure that I, if I notice all my friends are drinking, I'm going to stay sober so I can be the designated driver. Or if I see a woman walking down the street, I'm not going to lurk. I'm going to go, you know, give her her space so she doesn't feel, you know, and it goes around really thoughtful things. And then a young man, it was his turn, and he said, um, I'm not going to sexually assault anyone. And we all kind of nervous laughed and then went, yeah, yeah. yeah. Me too. And then every other person in that group made that same vow. Right. So I, I think that those couple of things would probably take care of the problem. Yeah, exactly. Just blatantly say, I'm not going to sexually assault someone. Right. Period. <laughs> and yeah. holding your, your, your friends, your peers accountable to do the same. Right. Ray, I appreciate it. This means so, so, so much to me. And you now will join the list of my Loyola friends and alums, <laughs> you know, who have come on the show to drop some wisdom and knowledge for me. I truly appreciate everything. Uh, please tell my brother I said hello. We've got to get together soon, definitely. But thank you so much. Thank I you for having me and uh, for paying attention to this, as you always do. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Everyone, thank you for listening to the What's Your Revolution show, powered by Aetna. It's been a wonderful conversation today. Ask yourself this question, man. You know, are you doing everything you can to make sure that you're being the best person for the people in your life? And as always, as always, be able to answer the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution? Take care, everyone. Have a wonderful week.